This podcast is brought to you by gold sponsor Equilend, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. And by silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Pazla's Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us for our third episode of the podcast series. Each month, we bring you insights and perspective from around the region on the news and developments shaping the securities lending industry. Coming up on this episode, we take a closer look at the ways in which automation and machine learning are streamlining the securities finance business. And we find out what job Morgan Stanley's Leslie Lynn would be doing if she had left the securities finance industry behind. More on that later in the show. But first, it is my pleasure to be joined by not only a desk head who runs one of the largest agent lenders in Hong Kong, an APAC veteran of nine years, a trusted friend, and more importantly, the newly appointed chairman of PASLA, Ben Burns, BlackRock, Hong Kong. Congrats on the new role. Those are very big shoes to fill, my friend. Thank you, Matt, and uh, nice to be here. Now, for people who aren't familiar, can you walk us through what PASLA is? Sure. So we are an industry body that was established back in 1995, I think, which actually uh, coincidentally is my year of birth, Matt. I would have not guessed that. I would have guessed somewhere in the 70s, early. (laughs) But anyway, basically, we're focused on promoting all aspects of the securities finance ecosystem here in Asia Pacific. So what does that mean? I hear you ask in non-jargon speak. So we are run by our members for the benefit of the whole set finance market. And we look to engage in any relevant topics that impact upon our collective businesses. Fair enough. And I know you mentioned members, but who exactly might the members be? So what's the primary goal? It's a very good question, Matt. So currently we have 60 member firms. Uh, They're made up of, amongst other things, borrowers, lenders, beneficial owners, exchanges, service providers, data vendors, and technology partners. And I'm sure I probably missed a few there. Um, but basically, in short, it's just you know any firms that are actively involved in the securities finance market in some form or another. Uh, so these might be at one end of the spectrum, super large global investment banks or asset managers, or at the other end, more locally focused beneficial owners or exchanges. And of course, everything that comes in between those two as well. So basically, what do we do? What's the primary goal? So from those members, we have an elected board of around 18 people who are basically tasked with coordinating our efforts through various avenues, including a number of individual working groups. So, for example, we have uh, working groups that are focused on core topics like China, business development, legal, for example. The direction we take is set by our members, and the strength of PASLA is absolutely the collective knowledge and resource of all of our members. It's exciting to be involved in such an organization, not least because the collective pooled resources of our members cannot be rivaled by any firm out there. Yeah, that's a great breakdown, Ben. Thanks. Now, PASLA works hand in hand with other industry governing bodies like RMA in the US, ISLA in EMEA, and ASLA in Australia. Is that correct? It is, yeah. Yeah. So so kind of one of the remits that we have is really looking, you know, and this this comes from the premise of you know strength in numbers and, and collaboration. So we look to collaborate with our partners in region like ASLA uh, or ASIFMA or more globally with ISLA or RMA to, to work together on, on items. Now, you mentioned closer collaboration with other industry bodies, and I realize you're building this plane as you're flying it, but could you give us a working example or two? Sure. So we've been working closely with ISLA recently to expand out our document repository. 
Uh, and for people that are not aware of this, this is essentially looking to establish uh, boilerplate uh, templates that will aid our members to enter into uh, transacting in certain markets. Another example would be the work that we're doing as part of uh, GASLA, which is the Global Alliance of Securities Lending Associations. We've been working closely with them on ESG and integrating ESG into the securities lending market. Incidentally, I think there's a, a new update that's due out next month, actually, on that. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Now, now changing gears slightly, we have very similar roles at our respective firms, meaning we've spilt the same blood and the same mud for years. So I realize how hard your job is. But tell the listeners the hardest part of not only your day job, but also with your newfound responsibilities as the chairman of PASLA. Huh. Very good question. And hopefully my boss is listening. Um, but no, look, I think I could draw a lot of parallels between kind of my day job and, and the role at Pazla. You know, in summary, I'd say it's, it's dealing with the demands of global and the nuances of local. It's just the sheer variety of things going on. So, for example, you know, every market that we're active in here in Asia has its own set of rules with varying degrees of complexity and, you know, an ever shifting landscape. And then you factor on top of that, you know, kind of the finite resources that we all suffer, you know, here in Asia. So it, it's certainly a big challenge. But having said that, you know, whilst it is a huge challenge, it's also what makes it really interesting and, and rewarding in both roles. So in summary, I th think it's probably f safe to say that how do you get everybody to pull in the same direction? Is that just a summary? Yeah, I, I think so. The, the real strength of Pazler is, you know, the ability to collaborate, the amount of collective resource that we have together. And it's really my job and the rest of the board members of PASLA really to just channel those resources into areas where, you know, our members have asked us to look into, you know, for the greater good. Fair point. Now, I've known you for almost a decade. And if you've known me for about five minutes, you realize that my flattery is mostly patronizing. But in this case, I mean it. You're one of the brightest guys in Hong Kong and especially in our industry. What keeps you so motivated? I'm waiting for the punchline on this one. Ironically, I don't have one. This is sincere, genuine respect, ironically. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll take it at face value and say thank you. And look, I, again, I, I'd just be repeating what I mentioned earlier in terms of motivation, but it really is, you know, it's a bit of a cliche to say, but two days are not the same and every day throws up its new challenges and solving those challenges is infinitely rewarding. And that's really what keeps us all coming back day after day, I would say. Yes, I wish I could share your same enthusiasm. It is a <laughs> difficult hill to climb daily, but we all do our best. Ben, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you, and more importantly, good luck captaining the Pazla ship going forward. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having us. On previous podcasts, we've done a deep dive into specific markets, notably Korea and China. This time, we have a little different spin on things. We break down the impact of technology in the securities lending world, and more importantly, how we as an industry plan on using technology to drive forward. I can't think of two better resources in Asia to help me solve this Rubik's Cube of tech ideas. Joining us is Yuka Hasumi from Equilon Tokyo and Dan Hart from Credit Suisse Hong Kong. Welcome aboard, guys. Now, for all those who don't know, Yuka, can you walk us through exactly what is Equilon and what are the primary functions? Sure. Equiland is a fintech firm at the heart of the global securities finance industry, providing a full range from trading to post-trade to reg tech to data analytics and securities finance platform solutions. 
I think it's fair to say that Equilend is most recognized to operate a, a global trading platform, Next Generation Trading, more commonly known as NGT. In essence, market participants can facilitate their borrow and lend into one single platform that is already enabled with tech, access, data, and parallel liquidity and intelligence. Now, where do you see automation best deployed in the coming years? Meaning, how can your clients use certain data for their own personal trading strategies? And maybe how has it impacted the relationship between asset owners, agent lenders, prime brokers, and even hedge funds? I think for us, the benefits automation or the tech touch are very clear. We believe the key to automation lies in uh, what we call the true source of data that will first be utilized to eliminate reconciliation, but it eventually can touch every part of the industry. Our one source initiative aims to help our clients become the first to have access to true data and the technology to allow for accurate, efficient automation of whichever part of their operations a client needs it to. Only let's say two decades ago, when Equilon was in its infancy, all elements of the trade were very manual. The error rate at the point of trade was sky high, contributing to many further issues downstream. Some trades were still hanky today, and we do find an error rate of approximately 30% of these trades. With NGT, where our automation technology executes point of trade matching, the error rate is reduced to 0%. The impact of automation across the lending community, I'll say, has been very positive because it you know, reduces more errors further upstream, creating cost and time savings for all parties to a trade. Now, Dan, what types of other technology are being deployed regionally? Are there markets that require greater internal automation for trading or regulatory reporting? So we're definitely seeing a steady move away from these massive in-house technology solutions um, that try and solve all problems in one application. Uh, modular solutions are being embraced for numerous reasons. Uh, one definite benefit of a modular platform is that you can cherry pick the parts you want to build in-house. Certain parts of the business lend themselves to a more off-the-shelf, if you like, solutions, while other parts, pricing springs to mind, require a more bespoke solution that would allow us to differentiate um, and improve our offering to clients. We know that quant clients also have analytics um, that let them compare brokers across the street, and they're actively leveraging this. Even single prime clients can get um, streetwide access to data. This kind of data is just going to become more and more widely adopted as time goes on. So we do need um, to maintain that competitiveness and automate that as far as possible. In terms of markets, South Korea, the regulations, as you're no doubt aware, are evolving continuously. And so automation is paramount to be able to navigate this market. Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. We covered that in our first podcast about Korea. So thanks for the update. Now, Yuko, the million dollar question is, how do we see technology evolving in the securities finance space? Do we envision blockchain or any other new technology being deployed? Funny enough, we're working on a one source initiative. Increasingly, we've been hearing market participants are looking for technology which is innovative um, and which solves the significant issues firms deal with on a daily basis. And OneSource aims to deliver exactly this. First of all, our starting point was a working group which defined several key challenges facing the industry. The core issue that OneSource seeks to solve is to eliminate reconciliation breaks and resulting settlement failure to offer the widest ranging benefits for the market. 
Now, Equinon is an expert in disruptive technology, and disruptive technologies harnesses emerging technologies such as distributed ledger, and that, that have the best opportunity to succeed as they build upon the most advanced technology of the time. Simultaneously, future-proofing the investment in the solution and the functionality it provides for longer. I think the decision to adopt innovation may still require thorough analysis, but regard it um, it as a foundational technology that has the potential to create new foundations. Now, Dan, does that align with what you're seeing and hearing? I think that what you're mentioning about blockchain and things like that, smart contracts, related technology, could eventually have a place in the um, securities lending industry. But that, to me, still feels like it's a long way off, to be honest. Other technologies are showing some more promise in the near term. I think machine learning is an underestimated and an important technology that will certainly need to be um, introduced to handle special case situations. Uh, What we have with machine learning, the core concept is to teach an algorithm by providing large amounts of data, training data. Using the training data, the algorithm can make predictions and decisions without having to be programmed with explicit rules. It's the same technology that's used in self-driving cars. (laughs) Um, for better or for worse. Um, For securities finance, it could be used um, to automate, for example, the pre-borrowing of stock at appropriate levels. However, our industry is also rife with very legacy technology. How much are we still reliant on Excel macros? Even moving towards just generally newer technology, um, cloud technology, for example, cloud computing, we get reliability, usability, and really importantly, agility, uh, and those features, those functions shouldn't be shouldn't be underestimated. Dan, do you think as an industry we'll be able to tailor automation to help ease regulatory concerns, whether it be short sale quotas in certain markets or monitoring FOL names or foreign ownership listed names? The list certainly goes on from there. Uh, so I think the answer to that question is that it absolutely must happen. Um, we must be able to tailor the automation to meet these demands. Uh, automation is absolutely key to addressing regulatory concerns. Manual processes are error-prone and high-risk. Due to the ever-shifting regulatory environment, we are finding ourselves, the manual processes, just they just can't keep up. To effectively address the regulatory concerns, we need real-time data and automated processes that can handle the data. This is really kind of a, a sink or swim area of the SBL business. Certainly, as you mentioned, short-sell quotas Foreign ownership limits, they're part of the problem. As you said, it's, like, it's, it's, a, it's a big list. Credit limits, uh, disclosure limits, restricted securities, rights issues, just to name a few areas where automation can help. Another aspect is we now get a lot of requests, particularly, again, mentioning um, South Korea, for reports or tire kicks or just in, in general, just like the regulators are asking us regularly for information. This can be a very time-consuming process. The desk can need to get involved frequently to provide approvals or various other aspects that can get in the way. Uh, so being able to automate and having high-quality, readily available data that we can provide to the regulator is also absolutely critical. I think this question is probably geared for Dan and myself, and I don't think there's any way to tap dance around it. But it does beg the question. Due to the rapid rise of automation and securities finance in, say, the past decade, what's the major value add for a desk trader? Meaning, if technology is so powerful, are we all at risk of going fully automated? 
So I certainly think um, the ability to be able to send baskets down and have chains where we can borrow from, from lenders um, in an automated fashion has been a game changer um, in terms of our day-to-day. It saved a huge amount of time. It hasn't solved the complete problem for us, though, or not just for us, but across the industry. We still have in South Korea, Taiwan, a lot of onshore lenders, um, and they are but we, we have to manually process baskets of borrowing stock with them. So there's, there's still quite a long way to go in that regard. Um, but I do feel like that's probably been the biggest game changer so far. So perhaps I'm a pessimist, but given the pace of change, <laughs> to answer your question, I wouldn't be overly concerned about securities finance being fully automated anytime soon. Our challenges lie more in how best to utilize the wealth of data we now have access to and how to balance all of this new automation with the loss of hands-on market feedback. You absolutely nailed it, Dan. The machines are definitely coming. God, that sounded like a Terminator movie, didn't it? But the human aspect is still priceless, not only from a fixer standpoint, but from an information gathering perspective, no less just for communication sake, meaning the clients need a real-time knowledgeable color. For example, why can't a large agent lender lend a certain name if it's a tax issue that can easily be negotiated or potentially legal concerted out? So I think there'll always be a need for humans, maybe just less going forward. Dan, thanks for your time and more importantly, your tech knowledge. Considering I'm still using a VCR, this is very helpful, especially to me. Thanks again. Our next legend of the market has worked at some of the largest prime brokers in the world, covering equity everywhere from New York City to Hong Kong. She's been in Asia for over a decade, and her presence and market expertise are sorely missed in Hong Kong. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Leslie Lin, Executive Director, Morgan Stanley, Taiwan. Welcome back, my old friend. Hey, Matt. It's really good. Uh, nice of you guys to uh, invite me back. Really glad to be here. Absolutely. So I recently spoke to your colleague, Eric Champion, He mentioned resilience as a huge contributor to being successful. What specific qualities do you think have contributed to your success in securities finance? So I spent a lot of time as a junior doing what some might view as grunt work that nobody else wanted to handle. Um, You know, that's like covering same days, marking recalls, putting together weekly content pieces, just general laborious tasks that generally falls to the junior person on the desk. And really, it was through this that I really got to understand the inner plumbing of the firm I was working for at the time, all of the risks and controls that are in place. And ultimately, all of these experiences helped me to pick up all the necessary skills you need as a manager in this day and age uh, to know the risks to your business and the infrastructure that is in place uh, for you to better harness your firm's capability to pursue the next opportunity. Just for a little context for the audience, you've transitioned out of securities finance and now run the sales and execution desk at Morgan Stanley based out of Taipei, Taiwan, which is more of a managerial role. Do you miss the constant ebb and flow of a securities lending trading desk? Yeah, I think to some extent what I do miss is some of that day-to-day. And don't get me wrong, I do not miss covering same-day needs. But I do miss that rush of winning a large ticket through relationship building. But you know what? Now I get the joy of celebrating those wins with my team. Uh, Because let's face it, whether it's sales and execution businesses or financing, uh, winning that big ticket or landing that client mandate feels just as good. And now you get to share it with more people. Now, I admit that I might be 
slightly naive, but I've always felt that 80% of management boils down to hiring the right people. That being said, walk me through your management style. I think it's better asked as, you know, how has your management style evolved over time? I guess what I would say is my management style at the beginning definitely skewed towards micromanagement, and I definitely could have benefited from better delegation skills. And it really took a few people who, who did work for me to sit me down and tell me gently that I would burn out if I didn't start trusting the people who work for me and delegated some of the work to them as well. It shows that, you know, you trust their capabilities, um, it shows that you're willing to step back and look at the bigger picture instead of, you know, focusing on the small details. And now it's really something that I consciously try to control my tendency to really just roll up my sleeve and, and get involved. And of course, you know, as a manager, you have to be able to show that you are able and willing to do that. But I think a, a large part of managing people is to recognize their potential and help them to achieve that while crushing it for whatever firm you happen to be working for at the time. Leslie, you are the energizer bunny. I don't ever see you burning out. That's just my opinion. <laughs> well, um, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I don't think this would be a Matt MacArthur podcast if I didn't mention a slightly embarrassing story about myself. Back in, I think it was 2004, a small tech firm reached out to me just for a simple reference check on behalf of a coworker. And they said they were looking to add some diverse or quote unquote diverse talent, meaning they were actively trying to bring in talent from the finance world. And they said, Matt, you'd be a perfect fit for a role here. Would you consider interviewing? I distinctively remember telling them, beat it. I'm not interested. Looking back, it probably wasn't the wisest decision to hang up on Google, but I guess it's a life lesson. That, that, but that does bring me to my point regarding developing talent. Every trading desk needs a range of talent, a hard-charging, slick-talking car salesman, a fixer, a tech algo guy, even a silverback gorilla to say, nothing bad will happen on my watch. How do we mold today's younger generation and help them build a well-rounded talent skill set? Yeah, um, I think one of the important things uh, is to have people at the top who they can aspire to. I think more and more, that means being able to develop talent that looks more and more like the teams that works for us. Uh, promoting inclusion, encouraging diversity, really does lead to a broader set of opinions and ways of doing business. I think over time, you know, it's a phrase that gets trotted out all the time and risks being overused. But when you couple finding something to aspire to with someone in senior management who looks like you or has the same background as you, guess what? People realize that this is achievable and is something to work towards. And what that means is having management also be willing to put that time into developing that talent. Yeah, it makes total sense. If I could change gears for a second, if I could put the genie back in the bottle and go back 15 years, I would tell my younger self to buy Tesla stock. But I guess we all would. <laughs> if you could go back to the future, what would you tell 22-year-old Leslie? Uh, right. So I'm going to cheat and tell myself two things if I could. Um, okay. So the first thing would be, don't be afraid to speak up or to ask questions. Uh, I find myself, even when I was younger, uh, even now as well, uh, that I second guess myself. Um, and I think the second thing is, uh, you can't let your life revolve around work. Um, you know, Matt, one of your previous guests, uh, Eric talked about resilience, and this is such a key thing for anyone starting out in their career to learn. I totally agree with Eric, because when people are just starting out in their career, they don't have the years of experiencing the highs and lows 
of a career. And without that really key ingredient of resilience, bouncing back from those lows and disappointment without a sense of bitterness becomes extremely hard. And especially for people who are ambitious. So to that, I say, find a hobby or something else. Could be meditation, could be breathing exercises, could be yoga, could be buying a punching bag, joining boxing lessons. But you got to find the one thing that helps you detach from work at the end of the day so you can start fresh the following day. Yeah, if, if I'm honest, if we're fixing blind spots here, Leslie, we're going to be here a while because I need some work. <laughs> it's okay, Mike. Uh, I, I, yeah, I do think about this a lot. If not for finance, I would probably be in Hollywood, ideally as an A-list actor, but most likely waiting tables. What would you be doing if finance didn't work out for you? Okay. Uh, I think I would probably kill it in event planning or even planning tours, just mostly from personal experience. I, I, I love traveling. And then I love also sniffing out the hottest restaurants, figuring out how to get a reservation. Now, imagine doing that for other people and you know seeing the joy that comes from someone else, enjoying something that you've uh, helped to put together. You know, I think that would be something that I would really enjoy. At the risk of repeating myself from other podcasts, one of the most important qualities that I tell new joiners is the best ability is availability. You can't help anyone, your clients or yourself, if you're not there. So please be present. What advice would you give not only new joiners to securities finance, but also maybe for struggling podcast hosts like myself? <laughs> Matt, I think you hit it on the, the nail on the head. My advice is you got to meet as many people in the market as possible. It's a relationship business. It's important to know who is who, who are you speaking to on the other side of that IB chat? Who's on the other side of that phone call? Um, when your counterparties are able to put a name to the face and counterparties could be the hedge funds that you cover. It could be the lenders that you speak to day to day. Uh, or if you're a lender, you know, the guys at the prime brokers, um, they'll know that there is a real person on the other side. You're not just yet another chat box. So um, I wholeheartedly agree with you. You just have to be be available, be around, be seen and interact with people. Um, if that means, you know, taking a little bit of time out of your nights to go to happy hour or, um, you know, setting up a lot of meetings whatever it is, you just got to be in front of people. Leslie, that is the first time in a decade we've ever agreed. Congratulations. No, stop that, Matt. <laughs> but uh, it's true. Well, all the thanks in the world, Leslie. You are a good friend and an even better interview. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Our only ask to the listener is, you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed please reach us at podcast at pazlaonline.com. Just before we go, a special announcement. Pazla is looking for its first chief executive officer. The organization is looking to find the right candidate to lead its growing association. This individual will establish and implement an engaged strategy with key stakeholders and amplify the voices of Pazla's members. Based in Hong Kong, the future CEO of Pazla will be responsible for developing and communicating best market practices and driving positive financials for the organization. For applications, referrals, or any questions related to the recruitment, please contact Pazla at info at pazlaonline.com. That's it for this episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. Join us next month for more topical issues for the world of securities lending. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by gold sponsor Aqualand, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. 
and silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business.